So when James asked me to preach, he only gave the date and not the passage. And I was a little concerned he was asking the single guy to give the annual marriage, relationship, and love sermon, which would have been bad for me and you, so I'm glad that is not the case. Yeah, <laughs> very little. And I've sat through enough of those sermons to know that they're bad on the best of days. So instead, he asked the uh, person who grew up in a very fundamentalist Baptist church to talk about rules, which makes a little more sense, I guess. So before we get into the contents of this passage, um, I know that we've been in Colossians for several weeks now, and James has talked about the context quite a bit, and so has everybody else who's preached, but I'm just going to give a little bit more info. So a significant portion of this letter that Paul writes is talking about what the church in Colossae was going through. It's a new community that he wasn't a part of founding, and he knows that in a large city that has a significant Jewish and Greek population, they're going through a lot of pressure from both sides. From the Jewish community, they're being told that their Christian faith isn't enough, that they have to follow the law, they have to follow the Torah, they have to abide by all of the eating rules and follow all of the Sabbath and all the festivals. So there's a lot of Christians in the community who are probably wondering if that's the case. And then from the other side, being in a Greek city, they're getting a lot of pressure from the Hellenistic communities, which is likely what a lot of these people were beforehand. Uh, during this period, there were quite a few Greek mystery cults or Gnostic cults who believed that they had special access to information, knowledge, and power, whether that's through talking to divine beings or through phrases or numbers for some of them. So in this passage, he's also addressing these concerns that the churches have. Because from this side, they're being told that what they have also isn't enough. That they don't have the secret knowledge that they need, the rules and the regulations and all of these things that they need to gain a higher spiritual awakening. So Paul isn't clear in this context if this particular teaching had already infiltrated the community or it's just something that they were dealing with, um, but that's not really important right now. Whatever the exact situation was, it doesn't really make a difference to what um, the heart of the message is, that what you do in reference to the beliefs and expectations of others holds no sway in your standing before God. Or to put it another way, it's not about rules and rituals, but it's rather about relationships and redemption. So I think that this is also one of the oldest messages in Christianity that we've heard many times in this building and wherever we were beforehand in other contexts. In the Old Testament, you have the prophets teaching that it's not that it's about the people's heart and their care for others and not about sacrifices and festivals. I mean, James talks about Micah pretty much every other Sunday, so we've all heard this one before. And then when we get into Jesus, he's calling the religious leaders whitewashed tombs who will cheat their parents out of money 
because they're following the letter of the law when it actually hasn't changed them at all. And then we get into Paul, who writes that we're saved by grace and not by anything that we can do so that we can't boast about it. Throughout the Bible there, we have this stream of God telling people through others that it's not about the rules. But at every turn, they're still making the rules and making them larger and making them more important. It's not about sacrifice, so then they go and sacrifice more because they feel bad because they were sacrificing. They continually return to the rules that they're told that they don't need to follow. And then moving into the period of the early church, we have the church fathers who are a part of the development of this new religious movement with a history of law and rules, and they're trying to figure it all out themselves. Well, it's, if it's not about the rules, then how do I make sure that I get saved? How do I make sure that I'm going to heaven? So they're all touching on this concept as well. It's not about what you do, it's about what God has done for you. But then we get into the long history and development of the imperial church, where it really becomes about rules. It is entirely about what you do. Every time you do something wrong, you have to go and tell somebody, and then you have to pay somebody. So that doesn't count anymore. And then you can go to heaven. It's about what you do, the rituals you follow. And then people get mad about that one. Luther comes along. He nails a big letter to a door. It's not about what you do. You're saved by grace alone, and that is it. And then that starts a new change in the church. There is a period where there is this development of proper change towards against the ritualistic, legalistic nature. But then, once again, we swing back the other way. We have the Puritans who, by their very name, are focused on how pure your actions are. I mean, these are the people who canceled Christmas because people were getting too excited about it. They wanted the government to step in and, cancel, and get rid of all gambling, all what they believed to be morally bad things. They were so against the rituals and the rules and legalism that they created more rules and legalism. And then they moved to North America and are pretty much the development of most North American Protestant churches. Now, to be clear, they're also not very pure. There's a lot of history of bad things happening in the Puritan church. Um, a lot of them owned a lot of slaves, so we're not really talking about how pure they were. Now, moving into modern day, we continue swinging, going, it's not about rules, and then creating more rules. This is especially true in the Protestant church, where We'll look at Catholic churches, we'll look at Anglican churches, we'll look at all of these things and go, well, they're too ritualistic. They're too focused on the things that you have to do. But also you can't do this. And you can't do this. You can't drink, you can't play cards, you can't dance. And it just creates this cycle that everybody gets tired of. I remember back in high school, there was a significant movement in this scene. There, were, there was a 
really popular spoken word poetry piece called Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. I don't know if any of you remember that. But it was this guy talking about how religion is all about what you do and what you can do, and it's all about your personal thing. And Christianity isn't a religion, it's about Jesus. I got in arguments to people just making a comment about religions and involving Christianity in that. We're like, Christianity is not a religion. Yes, it is. There are sermons and videos all about how Christianity is different. It's not about rules. But then at the same time, I saw people leave the church because they did something the church didn't agree with. It's not about rules and rituals, but you've broken a rule so you don't belong here. I have many friends because of something they did. They, they were told they don't belong, so they don't. So they left. It's as if they were saying that works can't get you into heaven, but they can sure keep you out. The presentation from the screen or the pulpit was not what was happening in the pews and in the gatherings. It's not about rules, but we're going to shame you into following ours. And what I'm trying to show here is that the church has a long history of having this discussion. Nothing I'm going to say is going to be new to anybody here. It has a long history of processing and implementing the whole law versus grace, rules versus relationship, and often in a way it is the driving force behind church history. Denomination splits happen, church splits happen because they disagree about rules most of the time. We're a collection of groups defined by what we do and do not allow. Now, growing up in a Baptist church, this is a big thing, as the church would differentiate itself from other churches. This is why we aren't Catholic. This is why we aren't Anglican. This is why we aren't Pentecostal. And this is why we're better than all of them. These were sermons that I listened to. Sermons on why adult baptism is the only true way. And if you're baptized as a child, as an infant, then that doesn't count. You're disqualified. You have to go do another one. Double dunked. That's why we have grape juice instead of wine. Because we're holier than them. So I understand that this message has been taught for many centuries. A message that we've all heard before. And it's also a message that we've all probably seen not lived out. Which is probably more frustrating than actually hearing the same thing over and over again. But it's an important message so we're going to go over it over and over again. It's not about rules. We preach against legalism, yet create lists of things 
that have to be done or not done to be a part of the community. But it's not about rules. So what does Paul say about this? In the first half of this passage, he writes, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are shadows of the things to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. What he's saying is, therefore, do not be judged and do not be disqualified. And on the flip side of that, what he's saying is, do not judge and do not disqualify others, which is often the harder one to follow. It's easier to discredit the judgment that people place upon you than it is to challenge your own judgment of others. There are those that say if we do not receive a certain baptism, then we do not qualify. Or if we take part in a certain communion, then we do not qualify. Or if we eat, drink, or smoke certain things, then we don't qualify. Or if we love certain people, or hang out with certain people, or associate, or are in certain relationships, then we don't qualify. For some people, some of these qualifications are easy to dismiss. I don't care about some of the judgment that is put on me because of some of the things I do, because it's easy to put that off as human rules that don't really matter, as fabrications based on their own opinion. But for some of these things, the situation is a lot more dire. It's not as easy to dismiss them. And the reason for that is because some of these qualifications that we put on people genuinely do disqualify them from taking part. Because when we, disqual when we say that they are disqualified, we remove them from the body of Christ. They're no longer welcome here. This isn't to say that they're unsavable because that word doesn't exist here. It shouldn't. But when people are forced out of the church, whether actively or passively, whether it's a, a full-on, you can't be here, or just putting enough shame on them that they don't want to be, then it becomes a lot more difficult for them to experience the kingdom of God. And it's not up for us to who does and does not get to experience God's kingdom. In Revelation, when it talks about the kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem coming down, he writes about all the gates that exist in the city. But then it also says that none of these gates will ever be closed. There's no key. And nobody gets to pretend that they have the key. Do not call anything impure that the Lord has made clean. It's not up to us or to them or to anyone who exists on this planet to decide what disqualifies a person from salvation because nothing does and that decision belongs to God. Now, I want to be careful with this and say that morality is still real 
and the right action morality and right action is a very difficult discussion in the church because in one way christianity and following jesus is about doing good things we are called to take part in bringing the kingdom of god here in serving the poor in protecting people and looking out for those who have been harmed by others and not doing harmful behaviors upon others so in one way it's about that and another way it's not like there are clearly things that are good and bad things that are beneficial things that are detrimental things that are harmful but the thing to remember is that not everything is black and white i feel like the church that we often it's easier to put a line straight down the middle and say these things are acceptable and these things aren't. But it doesn't work like that, unfortunately. It's not that easy. There's a large gray area in the middle, which is the space that people disagree about, but it's also the space that causes the most harm. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he writes, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. And whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God, and whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. That's a big statement. And it's easy to pass it over. There can be and there are disagreements concerning many of these things. The type of worship, acceptable consumption, acceptable actions. But these disagreements do not disqualify us or disqualify others. To give a physical example of this, we can look at something such as women in leadership in the church. Here, we believe that nobody is disqualified from leadership or teaching based on gender identity. And that's a good decision because there are women here and people who would otherwise be disqualified from preaching who are a lot more talented than I am. And it would be a shame to lose those people based on a rule that we decide. But there are other churches who take the opposing stance. And I think they're wrong, and I think their actions are harmful, but I can't say that their decision disqualifies them from taking part in the kingdom. I think it would be better if they changed their view, but I can't disqualify them from taking part. Now, I understand this is easy for me to say as somebody who has not been harmed by those people. I don't have the consequences on my back of saying that they're not disqualified, that they get to take part. 
And for some people, it's a lot more difficult, and I understand that. But it's still something we have to talk about. The rules are not up to us to decide. And it's not up to us to decide who is in and who is out. And moving on to the second half of the passage, there's something really interesting in there that I want to get to before I finish up. So in the second half, Paul writes, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with us, with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now, what Paul is saying here is that we're no longer bound by the rules of the world. But what's interesting about this is that the rules, the list that he gives out, aren't the normal worldly rules. I mean, they deal with physical things, but these rules come from more often than not religious institutions. What I see as worldly rules about what you can handle, touch, and taste are things that are concerned with physical safety. This is the rules that the world makes. Such as do not touch fire, do not handle venomous snakes, and do not taste poison. And I hate to break it to you all, but I'm most certain that we still have to follow these worldly rules. Some churches might disagree, because there is a list somewhere that exists that says we don't have to follow those, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. You can still get burned by fire. You can still die from poison. You can still get bitten by a snake. These worldly rules still exist. What is interesting is that the types of rules mentioned by Paul, that Paul states as being worldly, are the rules that are often determined by religion. It's religion it's people, it's spiritual institutions that declare that an individual can't eat or handle pork products. That rule doesn't exist outside of a faith system. It's these, it's faith systems that say that you can't come into contact with certain people. Because these rules have to deal with cleanliness, with spiritual cleanliness, that will disqualify you from taking part. Worldly rules often deal with staying alive in this world. It's the spiritual rules that are claimed to be about staying alive in the next. So on the surface, these rules come straight from religious communities and concern religious people. But that's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is that these rules may come from a religious perspectives and seem wise and important and may hold religious weight, 
but they are not divinely ordained. These rules may seem wise, but they do not come from God. They come from people's idea of God. People claim they are from heaven, but they only come from earth. These rules that people enforce so strongly, the rules that people use to keep people outside of the building, outside of the group, have no place in the kingdom of God. Because they bring no true value. Paul says that they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They don't even do anything. They just create a system that you follow, but they don't do anything to change who you are or what you care about. It's easy to follow this. It's a lot harder to change how your actions impact others. These rules do not disqualify people. So let no one disqualify you. You are welcome, you are worthy, and you cannot be disqualified by anyone because that is not their call. That is not our call. It is not up to us to decide which rules are important and which ones people have to follow and which ones are not. It's not up to decide which actions mean a person is no longer welcome in the kingdom because everybody is welcome. It's not about our rules. The gates to the kingdom are open and all are welcome to come free and unhindered by the created rules of others. Let's pray. God, thank you for this community and thank you for the welcoming doors that exist here. And I pray that if there are any boundaries, anything stopping people, any amount of human-placed shame here, that would have no home. Because it's not about us. It's not about what we decide. And we're grateful for that our decisions are nothing. So God, I just pray that you would bring freedom and welcome to this environment, to the people here, and allow it to spread as we welcome others, as we bring people in, unhindered by our own ideas.